open up, open up to Second Corinthians, and Susan, could you grab that light over there, please? Thanks. So, if you guys have been following along, you know that uh, as we've looked at Second Corinthians, we've seen that Paul had spent the first seven chapters defending himself and his ministry and defending the work of his fellow workers. And then we saw that in chapters 8 and 9, he kind of bumped out for a minute and transitioned into a new topic, and that was a topic of giving. And you might recall that uh, two weeks ago, uh, Michael spoke about the first part of chapter 8, and he revealed that Paul had discussed with the Corinthians the Macedonians' example of giving. And he said, I know that you guys have started to think differently of me, and you've got some concerns because of what the false teachers have said, and you might even be rethinking wanting to give. And he said, if you recall, you made a promise and a commitment to give to the saints in Jerusalem and to the saints and the believers who were in need, and I want to encourage you to remain faithful in that promise. And he said, the Macedonians gave, and they are also being persecuted, and they don't have a lot. They didn't have a lot to give, but yet they were incredibly generous, and it was God's grace working through them. And so we saw last week where he said, now, be good on your promise and good on your commitment and give. And he also reminded the Corinthians that they could trust him. He reminded the Corinthians that they could trust him with their gifts, that the gifts would be used for their intended purpose. Because remember what the false teachers may have been saying about Paul? They may have been challenging that, hey, you know, when he takes up an offering and he grabs from you guys, that he's skimming off the top. He might say that he's taken over there to Jerusalem, but we think he's really just using it for himself. And Paul says, no, that's not true. You can trust us. And he talked about Titus and the other two brothers that he was sending on ahead. And we saw a glimpse, and we're going to see a little bit more of that this morning, that one of the reasons Paul gave for sending brethren on ahead of him is so that when Titus and those other brothers got there to Corinth and they went ahead of Paul, that they could remind the Corinthians of their promise to give. And they could help facilitate the gathering of that gift in advance so that when the Macedonians and Paul come as representatives from these other churches, the Corinthians wouldn't be cut off guard, right? Because he said specifically, I don't want you to be giving in haste or begrudgingly. I don't want you to be caught off guard and surprised and now trying to produce an offering that you're either going to regret or that you're not going to do with a great heart. And he said, and I don't want you guys to be embarrassed, and I don't want you to embarrass us when we come. We have promised and we've told everybody about this great gift that you've got and your generosity. Now live up to it. So this morning, he's going to piggyback on that a little bit, but he's going to talk a little bit more about how giving relates to God. And I think that we can adopt a lot of this for ourselves as it pertains to our lives as believers and our relationship with God and our giving. So this morning, what we are looking at is going to be the remainder of chapter 9. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 15. And I don't believe that Paul necessarily intended to structure and break down his discussion in this way, but I'm going to tell you how we'll look at it this morning. We're going to look at it in three sections. And the first section is just going to be verses 6 and 7. And the way I'm going to describe that is the what. 
That wasn't a question. That was actually a statement. This is going to be described as the what. Anybody um, in maybe English or if you kind of start to dip your toes into journalism, when, you, when you're writing a story and you're charged with the responsibility of going in and getting a story for news, what are the things that you need to make sure that you grab for that storyline? Don't they say you need the who? What else? What? What, when, where, why? So we got some staples that we need to make sure that we cover. Well, this morning, I'm going to say that the first section is going to be the what. The second section is going to be verses 8 through 10. I'm going to call that the how. All right? And then the third section will be the why. So not quite our what, why, when, where, and how, but that's what we're going to look at. Look at verse 6, and we'll go ahead and read this. He says, Now this I say, who sows sparingly uh, shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. And then in verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Wow. So you can start to see where Paul's going with this. For a moment. So let's look at the what. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 where he says the what. And what we're looking at is how Paul reveals that there is an expectation upon the Corinthians, and I would say upon us as well, to give bountifully. He says in verse 6 Whoever sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Um, it's kind of interesting here that he's using this illustration of uh, sowing or farming. Uh, so you guys know what he means when he says to sow a seed, right? Not necessarily like a uh, needle and thread, right? But to plant. It's an agrarian example. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute. We'll see that he had did, done this before. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I think it's around 20. Uh, about 35 through 38. He says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And then he says in verse 36, You fool, that which you sow or plant does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now go back and flip to 2 Corinthians. The reason I went there for a second is because 
it was common, and you saw that Jesus would do this a lot in his public ministry. Jesus would walk around and he would talk to the crowds and the multitudes and he would use examples of life principles and applications that they could relate to. And so Paul's doing the same here with the Corinthians. He knows that at some level they can um, accept and embrace and understand uh, what I call an agrarian or a farming example. And in 1 Corinthians, he was reminding them, he said, there are those of you who are saying, hey, when a body is maybe corrupted here on earth and and maybe is uh, dismembered or, or, or doesn't look in whole when the person passes, how is that person to receive a new resurrected body? How can God do that? How is God able to, if their body is not, what it should be here. And he says, don't you understand? Look at the seeds outside. You know this. He says, when you put a seed in the ground, it looks a certain way. You water it, the sun shines, and the next thing you see is a new plant with new fruit and new blossoms that may not look at all like that seed that you put in the ground. And he's saying, so it is with God. When this body dies, he doesn't need this body to be put back together and give us something new for our new body. And so he uses an agrarian example there, and he's doing the same thing here, and he's going to parallel this principle of giving, and he's saying, hey, when you sow into the ground, and you sow bountifully, guess what? You reap bountifully. If you, get, if you put two seeds in the ground, you get more out than if you put one seed in the ground, right? So he's calling upon their knowledge and their familiarity with, with farming. And I love that example. And what's interesting is, In his grammar here, he has a couple of what we'll call constants. We have the principle of the sower. That's a constant in both examples, those who sow bountifully or those who sow sparingly. We have a process of reaping. Somebody who sows sparingly also reaps. Somebody who sows bountifully also reaps. So those are both constants. We have a description of reaping which is bountiful in both cases. In other words, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap bountifully and sparing, right? And so what we see here is the only variable in this equation is the volume of seed that you put in the ground, the volume of your giving. In other words, everybody is a sower at some level. Think about that. Everybody is a sower at some level. So, you're a bountiful sower. You're a sparing sower. You may not sow anything at all. Maybe you're a stingy sower. But everybody is a sower at some level, is what Paul's revealing. We, um, we went to Seven Springs Resort this past summer and got to partake of some of the summer activities they have there in in the the contrast of winter. And there was a pond up at the top of the hill, and you could get these paddle boats and rent these paddle boats and go out. And Sayer got this cool sort of paddle boat bite because she was old enough, and she got to go off on her own and do her own thing. Well, the other four of us got an actual boat. And so Rennie and I were in the front, and Susan and Mirren were in the back. Now, everybody had sets of pedals, but she's smiling. Rennie's smiling. Rennie and I, I'm pretty sure, did most of the work. <laughs> and so what we saw was if Rennie and I worked really, really, really hard, the boat went really, really fast. Whether they helped 
or not. And so the pedaling and the rate of pedaling was directly proportional to our speed. And if somebody didn't pedal very hard or very much like Mirren, well, then we didn't reap a lot of speed, right? So anyway, you may say, well, I don't sow anything. Well, that means you're just a stingy sower. Sorry. So bountiful sowing equals bountiful reaping. To sow sparingly uh, is sparingly reaped. And an, I'll say an absent sowing is zero reaping, right? But then we begs the question, well, how much should we give? How much should we sow? What is their criteria for somebody to be considered a bountiful sower or somebody to be someone who sows sparingly? Well, let's look at verse 7. He's going to kind of answer that. He says, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what Paul is reminding us here is that we are basically to give in accordance with what God has laid upon our hearts. The expectation that Paul had of the Corinthians was that they would give to the saints in Jerusalem what God had purposed or what they had purposed in their hearts. See that? In other words, there wasn't some sort of schedule or table that established who was a bountiful giver and who wasn't. Rather, what is God communicating to you in your hearts to give to those who are in need? And to that degree, he was expecting them to uphold their commitment. So it varies from person to person. And the expectation is that we are to be prayerfully considering what God has laid on our hearts as givers and to step up to the plate accordingly. But look what Paul says. He gives two warnings, or two behavioral warnings, if you will. He says, don't give grudgingly in the second part of verse 7. And he says, don't get, give out of compulsion. Hmm. Don't give grudgingly and don't give out of compulsion. Let's look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 for a second. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So you guys can go ahead and flip back to 2 Corinthians. So what Paul said there, previously to the Corinthians, is set aside your offering. Each person is to do that independently. And it's to be set aside prior to my arrival. In other words, I don't want to come... Arrive in Corinth, and you're all scrambling around trying to find an offering in haste. But rather, as the Lord prospers you, set aside each one accordingly. So it was between the Lord and each person individually. And the reason Paul said that was so that they wouldn't be giving out of compulsion or out of guilt, he also reminded them in verse 5 of chapter 9, look at this, it says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead, arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might not be ready as a bountiful gift and affected by covetousness. 
Again, he was saying, I'm not going to try and grab it and take it all up when I arrive. I want it to be ready beforehand because then you will have had time to consider it. You will have had time to think about it. And as you have purposed in your heart, it will be ready. And the result won't be that you regret it, that you give begrudgingly, or that you're disappointed. And if you look back at verse 7, Paul follows that up and says, God loves a cheerful giver. Huh. So in other words, we can derive that if we give out of compulsion, it's likely that we're going to eventually regret. If we give begrudgingly, we're going to not be happy. So he gives us two warnings about our behavior when it comes to giving. And he says, those do not lead to cheerful giving, but God loves a cheerful giver. So don't act in ways that cause you not to be a cheerful giver. And I would say for us too, when we give as we have purposed in our hearts, we will not be surprised, won't be regretful, and we won't consider it a loss, but we will be excited to participate in what God is doing. So that's the command that Paul has set forth. That's the expectation. That's the what. Now let's look at verses 8 through 10. We'll call this the how. Paul is going to reveal how it is possible to give bountifully. I'll give you guys a sneak peek. The answer is God. Verse 8, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, it's kind of a little bit of a tongue twister to speak, but the NET has a slightly different version I think is kind of nice. It says, God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. Now, here's what's interesting. The uh, Greek term for sufficiency that Paul uses there, in, in that exact form, is only used one other time, and that's in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. And what uh, commentators generally believe is that what Paul is doing is he is grabbing a Greek uh, term and principle from secular culture that implies a self-sufficiency and a self-reliance, and he's then adopting that and using it here in a new application. In other words, the Greeks prided themselves on being self-sufficient, being independent, and being able to um, acquire for yourself and do well on your own. And what Paul does is he uses that term and he says, God is the one who makes you sufficient. And God can work in all sufficiency. And he makes you sufficient in all areas and in all ways. So it's kind of interesting how he does that. And he says, the purpose for having enough in everything is intended to overflow toward others. Now, Paul is specifically addressing the financial gifts that the Corinthians had promised to give in this passage, but I would say that God's grace should overflow toward others in all ways of our lives, right? Kindness, sharing of the gospel, sharing each other's burdens, hospitality. When God abundantly meets our needs, we should be motivated to operate and bless others in similar ways, right? If God meets our needs and provides sufficiency for us, 
we should be overflowing with the desire to do so for others when we can. Um, just as an example, maybe that's not financial in nature, you guys know that Michael is a great, great scholar of the word, right? Really, really good at dissecting the word. And I think that um, that comes from both a diligence and an intentionality to work very hard at that. But at the same time, God has graced him with an amazing ability to do what he does. And what's really fun is to watch him in action in other groups. When you see him leading like a couple of guys in a Bible study, it's he just... You see him just come alive. He's he's sitting there and he's just completely animated. And you see this joy on his face to share what God has blessed him in. And he doesn't keep him to, to himself. He doesn't pride himself on it. But rather, if you watch him in action, you go, wow, this joy is overflowing. And he loves blessing others. And he loves sharing God's grace when it comes to the word. And you go, he could kind of hoard that for himself. He could pride himself on being a good teacher. He could just, but no, he uses his time, his talent, his resources. He shares that with as many who are interested. It's pretty special to watch. I said that because he's not here. He won't have a big head. Then uh, Paul, in verse 9, he quotes uh, a psalm. He says, As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, um, righteousness abides forever. His righteousness abides forever. Uh, flip to Psalm 129.9 for a moment. I'm sorry, 112. Psalm 112.9. If you look at maybe the title, if you have a subtitle, in your your Bible, this entire passage, this entire psalm, is all about the activities and the behavior and the motivation of the one who fears the Lord. In verse 9 he says, He has given freely to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. In other words, the psalmist is penning this description about a person who is generous, who fears the Lord, and as a result, shares and blesses others. And so when we see Paul use it in 2 Corinthians as a reference, what Paul is doing is he is reinforcing for the Corinthians what the behavior and the attitude of somebody who has been blessed by the Lord looks like and how that person is generous and overflowing with grace toward others. Then in verse 10, he's going to come back to this idea of sowing, this metaphor. And he's going to reveal that God is the one who gives the seed. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so Paul reveals that since God provides the seed for you to sow, he's also able and capable of multiplying it. And the result of increased sowing is an increase in harvest. 
And I don't know if you noticed, but towards the end of verse 10 there, he says, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, that's kind of worded in an interesting way. Are we righteous because of Jesus? Yeah. You've heard us challenge you before on this. How righteous was Jesus? Was he part righteous? 50%? What do you think, Amy? 100%? Jesus was wholly, completely, totally righteous, right? And so 2 Corinthians 5 says that we exchanged, he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. We've been imparted, we've been imputed with his righteousness. So if we have the righteousness of Christ, how righteous are we then? Completely righteous as far as God is concerned. Positionally, when God looks at us, he looks at us through the blood of Jesus and he looks at us through the lens and the filter of Christ Jesus. And we are completely and totally holy as Jesus was holy and we are as righteous as he was righteous. Now, we don't behave like that sometimes, and we don't live up to that. But positionally, for eternity, that's how God sees us. And so when this statement here refers to an increase in righteousness, I don't believe that it's about us becoming more holy and more righteous, but rather it's about what we have done and the activity becoming more righteous. In other words, look at what he's saying. He's saying, increase the harvest of your righteousness, your righteous activities in sowing and giving to others will be increased as a result. That God is capable and able to multiply it. And so for us, I would say that if we believe that our sufficiency is the result of our own great accomplishments, we're going to struggle to give bountifully, aren't we? However, if we understand that our sufficiency is the result of God's grace, we know that he will multiply. Yet, this is never intended to be a recipe for financial wealth. You know what I mean when I say that? The expectation that Paul has given and laid out is that we are operating in obedience to the way God is leading us. So many will take this passage and many will look at this and go, oh, um, if I want to get wealthy and if I want to prosper and I want to get rich, all I need to do is just sow a bunch and do a big faith seed and they'll treat it as an equation. That if I just give a ton of stuff that God's going to bless me and give me a ton of stuff. No, Paul is saying we are to operate as God is leading and placing on your heart. God will be the multiplier. God will be the one who increases. Then verses 11 through 15, this is the why. Paul reveals why it is important to give bountifully. And the why will essentially boil down to two main reasons. First reason is going to be that it results in thanksgiving and glory to God. And the second reason will be that it meets a literal need of believers who are struggling. So the, the first reason, he says it gives, it provides and results in thanksgiving and glory to God. Look at verse 11. He says, um, As you sow, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, 
which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So Paul is saying that as the Corinthians give, they'll be enriched in every way so that they can be generous on every occasion. So their enrichment by God will provide greater opportunities for sowing. And the result will be a greater thanksgiving towards God. Greater honor and glory to God as a result. Look at verse 12b. This ministry is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is clearly revealing that one of the reasons or the results of sowing bountifully and giving to those who need is that it results in thanksgiving, praise, and glory to God. In other words, it's not about you, but when you overflow to help others, God is glorified. God is honored. The second thing is that it meets the needs of the saints. Verse 12a, this ministry of this service fully supplies, supplies the needs of the saint. saints. And then in verse 14, the saints who receive your gifts will also be lifting up prayers for you on your behalf because of the extraordinary grace God has shown to you. So not only does overflowing with grace and generosity to others result in glory and honor to God and praise and thanksgiving, but it also meets a need. I think Michael mentioned a few weeks ago uh, the passage in James, where James specifically mentions uh, an example, whether real or hypothetical, of somebody who knocks on your door in a time of need. And they've got a physical need that might be clothing and warmth. It might be food in their stomach. They're struggling physically in a very real, practical way. And when we answer the door, hypothetically, and we just say, be warm, be well, I'll pray for you, and send them on their way, He even says it's likely that that person will die as a result. There is a very real and physical need that is not being met. And to say flippantly, well, just be warm and be on your way, doesn't cut it. And so giving helps in very real and practical ways. I don't know if you guys have ever had an opportunity to maybe give anonymously. Has anybody ever done that? That'll challenge your heart. That will that will cause you to realize your motivation. Am I doing this for my own glory or am I doing this for the glory of God? When I, when, I, when I give anonymously and the recipient doesn't know the source, God's going to get all the praise 
all the glory and all the honor. And sometimes when we apply that filter, we go, huh, maybe my heart wasn't quite in the right place. Maybe if I'm not super excited about doing this, maybe I wanted the glory. Maybe I was being selfish about this. Maybe I wanted some credit for what I'm attempting to do here. It's kind of a good challenge. Had a um, had an example of this, I suppose, over the summertime. I didn't tell Susan about this. There was a gentleman who um, put on a concert in our building, and he asked if he could pay the fee for the use of the building out of the proceeds from the ticket sales. And I was like, oh, I know where this is going. (laughs) But I said, sure. It's somebody I've worked with before, and he's got a good heart, and he means well. And so this concert wasn't very well attended, and I kind of knew what that then meant. Now, his responsibility and obligation to me was not predicated upon whether the building was filled or not, but unfortunately it put him in a position where if he didn't get a lot of revenue from the door, now he's got to come up with it on his own. And so he wanted to uh, come back later that week and make good on it. I said, that's fine. Uh, you know, Don't sweat it. I said, just text me a time that you want to come by and we'll take care of it. And that week went by and didn't really work out for him and a couple months went by and I was polite I think maybe I just sent just a reminder kind of invoice over text or something like that very politely said hey you know when you have a chance um, didn't really hear anything back from him so now at that point I'm starting to starting to get a little riled up in my spirit right I'm kind of starting to go now I've done work with this guy before and we've had a good working relationship and I'm I'm honoring and operating in faith and trust I mean can't he be a better representative for Jesus himself, you know, so I'm starting to get kind of greedy and nasty about this in my heart, but I haven't done anything publicly, I haven't reached out to him and said anything that I would regret, I operated in grace, and lo and behold, the telephone rings, and it's him, and I answer it, and he says, hey, he said, I wanted to call because I know I owe you money, I said, oh, okay, and he said, but I also want to tell you why I've been absent, he said, like two days after the concert, he said, I went into the hospital. He basically had like a heart attack and it was the result of him running a pretty ragged life on the edge. Not, um, I don't mean to imply that there was any inappropriate activity, but just uh, burning the candle at both ends. He was just pushing himself way too hard. He had a, a secular job that he operated in. He uh, pastored a church. There was just a lot of stuff that he had going on. He was just pushing himself way too hard, and his body couldn't take it anymore, and he just started to fail and had to go into the hospital. And he was in the hospital for like, like a month and a half straight. His phone had been taken away from him because that was part of the problem. His phone contributed to his nervous breakdown and his heart attack and everything. And he's calling me because he's saying... Um, I know that there's been a breach in our relationship as a result. I want to make good on the money I owe you. And now the reason I'm telling you guys this story is as he's talking to me, he's explaining that his time in the hospital has prevented him from working. So I know that he doesn't have an income right now. But he's calling and reaching out to me and saying, I need to make good on our agreement. 
And I felt like the Lord was saying, don't worry about it. You don't need it. It's not, it's not I mean, the event was two months ago. You've kind of moved on. I had every right to say, yeah, okay, let's make arrangements. But God said, don't worry about it. And I told him, I said, you know what? It's okay. We're straight. We're good. I said, you're always welcome to come back. You're always welcome to put on the next event. I said, this one, just let it be. I said, God's good. And he was so appreciative. And he was like, he started crying on the phone. And he was so thankful. Uh, we hung up. And here's the point of my story. I hung up the telephone. I had a total peace about it. I was fine. I was getting ready to go on with my day. I grabbed the mail that had just arrived while I was on the telephone. And there was an envelope. And the envelope in it, in the envelope, was a notice that our car loan had been paid off. Now, it was paid off by us paying it off. But that very day, after I had just forgiven this debt over here, I get this envelope that says, hey, you're all done. Correct. So I had been making automatic payments, right, that are just pulled from the account. I don't really pay attention to it. We had set up to pay more than the minimum, and so it was progressively chipping away at the balance faster. I, I, don't, I wasn't keeping track of it. I wasn't really – I figured you know, we were still had a ways to go on it, and it was six or eight months earlier than I was planning. Now, there was no supernatural erasing of our debt. We had paid it off. But what God was revealing was he was taking care of us. You know, I didn't need to go be really aggressive about that other amount. And getting that confirmation in the mail was just, hey, you're all right. You don't need it. Everything's good. And I believe that God was honored and God was glorified in that. So, as we kind of pull this together, Paul, in this passage, begins by reminding the Corinthians specifically to make good on the previous promises to give to the Macedonia or to give to uh, Jerusalem, and he gives these truths that we should be applying to our lives as well. You know, he reminded us that there is an expectation placed on the believer to give and to sow into others' lives. He reminded us that giving is a response to God's leading. It's not something we do out of compulsion. It's not something we do hastily or grudgingly, but prayerfully in consideration of how God is leading us. He reminded that God is more than capable of supplying all our needs. He's the one who provides for us in the first place, and therefore he's the one that's going to continue to meet our needs. If what we have is from him, and all sufficiency comes from him, then when we distribute to others, 